Grit simply is you won't give up. You fight till the bitter end and you just like won't give up, whether it's hardship or whether it's failures or whether it's anything else. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Now let's get to the episode. Ryan, let's rock and roll. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I always say that I always start these things by reading my guest backgrounds back to them. So I'm going to screw things up. Tell me where I screw up and we'll take it from there. Deal? Deal. You got your BA in economics from UC Berkeley. You then went to Google, your recruiter for a year, which then sent off a stint of a couple years worth of recruiting. First at Reardon Commerce, you were a technical recruiter there. Then you went to Sony, you were a talent scout there for a brief stint. Then you landed at LinkedIn. You had a 10 year run there, just under. Started as an AE and a team lead for about a year and a half. Then a regional sales manager on the SMB team for a year and a half. Senior manager of sales for the Western region for a year and a half. And then uh, director of sales for SMB and enterprise in the North America region for four years. And then the last stint that you had at LinkedIn was the senior director of sales for talent solutions. You did that for about a year. Then about two and a half years ago in 2018, you joined a company called Gong as the chief revenue officer. We're going to get to talk about that. I'll pause there. What I miss? What I screw up? Everything was sound as can be. Okay. Random question. What was your first job? <laughs> first ever? First ever. I was a stock boy at Office Depot. And it was brutal, man, because I had to wake up at four in the morning during my high school summer days. You'd end up staying up late in high school for many not so great reasons. And so I'd be on the floor in, you know, like oh, turning on the lights at Office Depot at four in the morning. And I think I was getting paid something like, I don't know, five bucks an hour, something like that. So did you do that by choice or did your folks say, dude, you got to go get a job? I think my dad said, dude, you got to go get a job if I remember correctly. Because, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have probably opted into that for very long. And he actually bet me at the beginning of the summer that I wouldn't last. <laughs> <laughs> but I did. So I got, oh, I got some extra coin out of that too, which was nice. You did better than I did. I didn't last my first summer job. So maybe a story for another time. It was at Subway. It was at Subway. <laughs> you are a sandwich artist, huh? I'm a sandwich artist. That's right. I had it on my LinkedIn and then I got rid of it because I was embarrassed. Anyway, so dude, I had a couple of questions. There's a couple of things that I want to make sure that you and I touch on. One of the things that struck me about your background, and we've been very fortunate to have kind of what I consider the LinkedIn mafia on the show. It just turns out that there's a lot of great leaders that have come out of the LinkedIn lineage, Dan Shapiro, Peter, you, and the list goes on, by the way. One of the things that I noticed was at LinkedIn, you kept getting promoted. And I went a bit into the archives and on YouTube from 2010, there's a video of you as an account executive. And I think you were like the team lead at the time. You were obviously successful because LinkedIn wanted to put you on a pedestal through media. And it was, it was actually really funny. You were like shooting a hoop. It was pretty cheesy, but you were obviously really good. And what made me think of this question was like, this guy was good in his first job at LinkedIn. And it's not an accident. Like, yeah, LinkedIn grew. And yeah, we talked to a lot of people have, who have grown with LinkedIn, but not everybody did. There's something, some set of qualities, and this is going to be really hard for you to talk about yourself in this way, but what was it about you that made you good right from the start and then enabled you to continue to be successful and perform in each role, which was very different than the previous? Question makes sense? Yeah, totally. Thank you for pulling up that hugely embarrassing video and broadcasting it to your entire uh, listening base. So, Yo, I'm going to put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, please don't. <laughs> well, I remember a conversation I had with the recruiter when I was being hired into the job. So actually what's not on the LinkedIn profile is that that first job as an AE was a contract position. It was three months and you hit $50,000 in sales or, you know, you don't have a job anymore. And so, you know, there's a, a little bit of added pressure there and the economy was not in a great place. It was the end of 2008. And so it was a tough setup to say the least. 
And the, the recruiter, when I was coming in, asked me, he said, hey, you know, you've never done sales really before. You've been a recruiter, but you've never done sales. Are you worried you're not going to be able to do this? And this wasn't the, the right answer because I wanted it to be the right answer. It just like popped out of me. I said, I'll sleep under my desk if I have to. And it was one of those moments where like, I, I was just like, no, no, no. If I, if I apply myself fully, if I learn humbly from the people around me and I work my ass off, I'm going to figure this out and it's going to go well. That's not the, the whole story, but that was a lot of it is just like determining that, that I was all in. And was this common at LinkedIn at the time? Like, was this a try before you buy, test drive the car before you get off the lot with it kind of thing? You hit 50K, you show us what you're made of. And if not, you don't get a job. I think it just shows how early the company was. It was 300 employees. It was a consumer internet company at the time, not a big enterprise software company, you know, like in terms of what, what it's become in terms of the majority of revenue coming out of the enterprise sales team. And so it was still exploring, like, what does it look like for us to sell into the enterprise? Do we have an outbound SMB sales team that's attacking this market or do we rely upon our subscription business? So I think it was more about like testing the model than it was testing the individual. So let's take that a step further because I've thought a lot about this. I think interviews are a really terrible way to qualify for talent. And I think if you're good, then you'd say, hey, I would love that. Like I will sleep under my desk. And you know what? Pay me nothing and then pay me what you think I'm worth after three months because I guarantee you, you'll think I'm worth more in three months than like the ambiguity of this two-hour interview process. You almost said like, hey, it's because they were early. I think Facebook used to do that in the early days. I don't know, would you do that now? Or do you think that's just like a faux pas for how competitive it is to recruit talent? It would just never work that way anymore. Well, I think there's a couple things in that. One, the interview process is a two-sided venture. So that maximizes to mitigate my risk on the hiring manager side of things. Yep. But it shifts all the risk onto the candidate. And so I do think it would be good for the company. I just don't know how many salespeople, if you have, you're in a competitive market like we are, unless you're an amazing company with a crazy brand, then you may get away with it. But I think in most cases, you won't get away with it. But I completely agree with you that interviews are not a great, I mean, this is proven through data and studies, right? Like interviews do not give us the greatest indication into whether somebody's going to be successful or not in the way that they happen. So yeah, it's something we got to navigate for sure. The other thing that you said was that, look, I'll sleep under my desk if I have to. Why do you say that? Where is that coming from? Why did that mean so much to you? A lot of my previous guests are motivated by fear of failure, they're so desperate to prove to themselves that they can do something that they would sleep under their desk. I mean, myself included. Maybe I'm leading the witness a little bit, but where did that notion of like, that just came out of you? You didn't know what else to say, but you had to prove to them how all in you were. It's a good question. I'll ask the same question around motivation with people who I interview. And and oftentimes in sales, it's money. And it's like, money's a motivator for me, but it's not the type of thing that that's going to make me sleep under my desk by any stretch. I think there's like a a recognition piece. I don't know that that's going to be the thing that makes me sleep under my desk. I think for me, it's probably, I don't know if you call it a worldview or what, but I want to see how far I can push the limits of the God-given talents and abilities that I've been given. And whenever I enter into something like that, until I've proven my, I'm able to do it in a particular area, then it's in question for me, right? Like I didn't know for sure, but I knew that I was going to go to the mat trying. It's like, why don't you uh, want to get into a fight with a dog or something like that? You know, like the, the reason why you don't, well, a lot of reasons, but one of them is because they're so singular focused, they will not stop until it's done. And I think it's like that intensity, that all in nature of it. Like I feel that way, that same thing where I'm like, no, 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 I am going after this thing with everything. And I think most of it is like, it feels like a test as to whether I can overcome or not. And in some ways that feels really vulnerable. And in other ways that feels like really exciting. And it's a big blend of all that stuff. But I think that's my primary motivator when I enter into any opportunity is like, hey, I wonder if I can overcome in this particular situation as well. Now, when you talk about the all-in thing, 
that's grit, that's stick with itness, that's all the things that are what made successful people successful. The problem with that is when you're all in, you're not just all in on your work. You're all in as Ryan, as a person, bringing everything he has around him, his life, into making sure that he's successful. That usually works really good, and it usually ends up being successful. The problem is when it doesn't work, it hurts so much worse, right? The peaks are so high and the valleys become so low because your success is inextricably tied to who you are, who Ryan is as a person. And maybe I should just speak for Juven because that's how it feels for me. But like whenever I'm all in on things, that's all I can think about. And it's usually what makes me win. But the losses just feel so visceral for me. Does that resonate with you? Or could you imagine a world when you told them that you would sleep under your desk and then you did, and then you didn't hit 50K? Like, could you even imagine that alternative universe? Such a good question, man. I, I think the first part I'd say is when I say that I'm all in, I actually don't mean that the rest of life bows down to the thing that I'm all in for. I think I really mean that I'm all in from a work perspective. In other words, like I have a wife, I have two children, I have, you know, other responsibilities outside of work. And when I say that I'm all in, it means that I'm all in within the bounds of what I'm willing to give to that professional opportunity. So it's different bounds for different people. But, you know, when I started at Gong, I went to my wife and I was like, hey, this is going to get really intense. This job's going to be ridiculously demanding. Are we in this together? Like, are you good with me taking calls, you know, past X amount of time and working, you know, X amount of hours? And there was kind of like a defining the box that happened first. And then that defined my all in. So I was like, okay, here's what all in means. And I made that decision with my family. And then it was like, okay, within that definition of all in, I'm like all in. But yeah, I think it's really dangerous because you'll end up prioritizing things that are less important for more important things if you don't define what all in is. So I think that's number one. I think number two, it stings when you don't do something the way you want it to go, right? I mean, I think that that's like, that's just like a hard part of life. Like when you go all after something and then you fail, (laughs) there's no two ways about it. It sucks. Either you've shut down your heart so much that you don't feel the sting of failure anymore or that hurts every time. And if you're living and you're really all in, it's going to hurt for sure. So I think that's part of it. And it does. So I'm going to table the failure stings part because I am making a concerted effort on this show to talk more about failure than success. And that sounds really weird but everyone on the show is so damn successful. It's like, that's not relatable. No offense, but you're not really relatable to most of the audience. Like you've had this meteoric, insane rise. And most of the time people just assume, well, his LinkedIn shows that he got promoted literally every year and a half on the dot for 10 years. Well, he must be pretty damn good or he got pretty lucky. So I'm gonna table the failure thing for a second. The parameters that you define around being all in. I was listening to a podcast with Tim Ferriss And it was the co-founder of Netflix. And he talked about how he had a rule where every Tuesday at five o'clock, no matter what, he would go home for date night with his wife. No matter what, he would never compromise it. So Tim asked him like, there's no way you could stick to that because business comes up, like meetings happen, fires that you have to put out. And he said, no matter what, every Tuesday. And he goes, look, was there Tuesdays? that we switched to Thursdays, sure. But that was a deal. That was the parameters that my wife and I had set, and it was really important. And that was an agreement as almost me taking the job, was an agreement with my significant other that these are the parameters that like all in means for us, not for me, not for Netflix, for you and I. And he said that over time, at the beginning it was a little awkward and people thought it was a little strange, but over time, it almost gave the team permission to also have their own parameters. And I think as a leader, that's a really powerful precedent to set is giving parameters for what all in means and then kind of letting people fill their own cup at home so that they can fill everybody else's when they come back to the office. That's right, man. Yeah. I think great leaders want their people to thrive holistically, not sacrifice their entire life for work results. 
right? And I think when you have that orientation as a great leader, then of course it's a virtuous circle where your home life is thriving and that makes you better at your work and then your work life's thriving and it makes you better at home and they're all tied to one another. But I think as, as leadership, this isn't the right reason to do it, but you are going to get more out of your people if they have optimized for their life with work as a component, not optimized for work and let life kind of trickle along and suffer along the way. That's not a good long run strategy for anybody. And so, yeah, I think it's, you have to model it as a leader and other people will see it and they'll follow it. Yeah, I completely agree. Even with my team, like I was unabashful about saying that I need eight hours. No matter what, I have to sleep eight hours. I have to work out every day. If I don't get a sweat, I become an ugly version of Juven. If I don't do a certain set of things that I need to bring to the table, then those are my parameters. I have different sets of parameters that don't include a family, but I know exactly the deal that I almost made with myself. These are the things, no matter how much of a grind it will ever become, I will not negotiate a certain set of things because you as my employer do not want me to negotiate those things because I won't be able to bring it in the way that I need to. That's it, man. And I like how you made it about yourself too. You're like, no, 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 this is something I'm negotiating with myself because I think a lot of people disempower themselves from it. And they're like, oh, my work is demanding me of this and my boss is demanding me of this. And, and that may be the case in some cases. More often than not, what I've seen is people are demanding, they do it and then they go down the line and don't even realize that they're doing it. And then, you know, they experience the hurt of the bad setup, so yeah. And when you selfishly look at it through the lens of what makes me great at my job, it's almost like, well, what makes me great at me is what makes me great at my job. So how can I maximize being great at me? And being great at me, I certainly know how to minimize it. It's like not getting enough sleep and like not eating the right foods and not working out. And as soon as I kind of like equated the two in my world, it became really easy for me to be like, all right, if my priority is being the best worker and employee and my job means everything to me, then I better start prioritizing me in order to give everything I have to that job. So moving right along, failure. So I have seen you tweet something. I think it was a tweet. And you said, success in one area is as dangerous as failure in another. Maybe we could use that as the launching point for, what do you mean by that? I don't even know if that's my tweet. I sure like it though. <laughs> Maybe I just misassigned it to you. I'm pretty sure it is. Maybe it's not. If it was, it was from like six years ago. Oh, perfect. Success in one area is as dangerous as failure in another. And I'm using this as like, what is your relationship to failure? And I'm not trying to be too meta about this conversation. How do you think about it? Yeah. A lot of what I'm about to say is aspirational. I think that's the way it goes in a lot of our development areas is that you, you have to work to think about something this way until you do it for a while and then it just is. But I think what I effort and what I aspire to think about failure is that failure is just another step towards being amazing. Look, if you're doing the career acceleration, because we're talking about career stuff, but this applies to anywhere in life, if you're doing the career acceleration stuff, right. What it looks like is constantly remaining uncomfortable because your career accelerates because you've become incredibly valuable to the company. And so then the company then says it's in our best interest to give this person more responsibility because they can hold the responsibility that we want to give them right? They've been faithful with what we've been giving them. Let's give them more. And so the way career acceleration happens is you become somebody that can be faithful with the responsibility that you've given, and then you get more, and then you get more, and then you get... And so what that means is you have to become valuable. You have to become amazing at what you're doing if you want somebody to trust you with more. And the, we all know this, but it's just a painful truth. The way you do that is by branching out into new opportunities, into unchartered things, into pushing yourself in areas where others have gotten comfortable. But like refusing to stay comfortable in your career life is the best way to accelerate your growth and accelerating your growth is the best way to accelerate your career. And so I think if you're saying that, then what you've just said is you're pushing yourself to be doing new things all the time. And we all know this too, but like when you're doing new things, Guess what happens the first time you try to ride a bike? 
You know, you fall on your face. Guess what happens the first time you try to date somebody, right? You, you screw it up because you've never done it before, right? In almost every area of life, the first few times you do anything, there is going to be failure in that area. And so another way of, of saying this, like, if you're not failing, you're not actually trying anything that's risky or new or that will make you better. If you're not failing, then, then you're not in the game. And you've effectively decided where to level off. And so, you know, failure isn't something you experience earlier in your career and then not experience it later in your career. It just gets riskier and riskier because the stakes get bigger and bigger. But it's absolutely central. And it is. It's, a, it's another step towards, you know, being the leader you want to be or the sales rep you want to be or amazing in whatever area you're targeting after. But like, there's no way around it. And so I think navigating right smack dab through it is, is the best way. And I've always thought of risk as feeling bigger than it ever actually is. Like any big decision that I've ever made in my career always felt so risky. It felt like I was leaving so much behind. And by the way, each decision, to your point, the opportunity cost continues to grow. But once you make that decision, even like a month in, you look back and you're like, I way over-assigned what I thought was risk to that decision. Do you feel that way? Oh, man, so true. In fact, uh, I think it was like five years ago. I don't even remember what I was navigating through. But I started to ask myself every time I was doing something risky or when something bad happened or I failed at something, I started to ask myself, am I going to remember this in five years? And when I applied that standard to it, I don't know if it's because I'm forgetful or what, but very few things actually made the cut. And it's true. I look back on various moments in my career and I don't remember a whole bunch of them. I don't remember the, most of the things that happened. And so I think you're totally right. We usually magnify the risk and the cost and underweight the return part of things. Any of those failures that did make the cut that you'd be willing to share? Yeah, for sure. So when I'm in the moment and when I'm missing and feeling vulnerable from not showing up in the way that I wanted to or like applying myself and having it not go the way I wanted to, it feels to me like in the moment, the small things are just as, as intense as oftentimes the big things. And I don't know if this is me like being a recovering perfectionist or if this is me like being hard on myself or whatever, but when I walk out of a client meeting and it's not the end of the world if I didn't show up right, I end up reflecting for the rest of the day, like what happened there? Like, why didn't that not go the way that I wanted to? Or if I have a one-on-one -on -one and the person, you know, I'm trying to inspire them and challenge them, I just end up challenging them and not inspiring them. And they walk out with more weight on their shoulders than when they came in. I notice that stuff and I reflect on it. And so I think like the failures to me don't need to be the massive moments. I have those too, right? Like the things where I swung at something pretty big and it just did not go well. I'm happy to share what those would be. But the things where I feel like we end up shrinking back from failure are more the, the smaller moments where we feel like we didn't show up in the way that we wanted to or the outcome wasn't the way we wanted to and we end up shrinking back in those areas. And so... I don't think it's helpful for us when we're thinking about the topic of failing at something to make it only the grandiose moments where it's like, my example would be, I was an executive sponsor on a product launch at LinkedIn and that product launch did not go well. And it was largely because I did not lead through it very well. That sucked. That stuck with me. That affected my career. That was not a good moment for me. And it was very visible and very senior, you know, like senior people in the company all knew about it and everything else. So so there are big moments for sure like that. I find it's more the small moments where we end up kind of shrinking back from the fullness that we can go after. Can I give you my take of what that was? And I actually dead on agree. What I hear you saying is basically like, it's not necessarily when I think of failure that I think of the outcome of the failure. I think of the inputs, the process. And I think the part about failure that hurts so much, and I do the same thing, I don't think of the actual failure or the deal that we lost or the hire that I didn't get done that I really wanted. I think about my process. What could I have done differently? And that's where I'm the toughest on myself. You know, you said it well, like a recovering perfectionist. I think of it the same way, like failure, if you think about it in terms of the outcome, 
you can't learn from the outcome. You can learn from the process. And if you only view failure from the lens of outcome, that's a really scary way to look at it because you can't actually use that failure as fuel. You use it as fear. And often I use it as fear and I'd like to do better at using it as fuel. And I think the only way to do that, and I don't mean to be like pie in the sky about it, is like thinking about the process. And I think that's a healthy way to relate to failure. Yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it. John Wooden, one of the most successful basketball coaches in all of history. So, you know, seven championships, I think it was maybe more consecutive championships at UCLA. Crazy coach, one of the most inspirational leaders in sports history. The thing he did more than anything that stood out to me, at least, is he redefined failure for his team. He went in and said, basically, like, if you leave it all on the court and you've done everything that you could do to prepare, to show up, to play your hardest, and you didn't win, then you should walk out of that stadium feeling amazing. And if you killed the opponent and you half-assed it, you should feel like you failed. And so he basically redefined failure for his team as not winning or losing a game, but failure is giving anything less than your all when you show up. And I think this is something that's incredibly hard to do. But if you can start to redefine failure for yourself, where you're like, you know what? That client meeting didn't go at all the way I wanted it to. But you know what? I prepped. I showed up. I gave it my all. I did everything I could. And it still didn't go right. I'm going to learn from it. I'm going to get better. It sucks. Like it still stings, but I feel good about it because, you know, I did everything I possibly could. That is more of where we need to live rather than focusing on the outcomes, like you said, because there's nothing really in the outcome that's all that helpful. I was listening to an interview with Laird Hamilton, I think it was, like some amazingly prolific surfer. And he said, you know what? Surfing should be called paddling, not surfing, because getting up on the wave. That's the easy part. The part of like getting out to the waves, catching the wave, waiting to figure out, is this your wave? Like that's the process. That is the hard part. Standing up, that's okay. Like most people can just stand up. And that really resonated. And I think it's very John Wooden-y, if you will. So I agree. Sorry to do this. I'm going to take over host for a second, but I'm going to call back to something. <laughs> I'm going to call back to something you said earlier where you're like, yeah. you know, people look at your LinkedIn profile and I don't know that they can relate because there's like a, you know, promotion every year and a half and et cetera. And something that I've been pondering lately has to do with the whole idea of imposter syndrome. And they've done studies that show that 80% of executives, senior executives, have something called imposter syndrome, which is like, if people could see what I see about me, I don't know that they would put me in this job, right? Like that's what imposter syndrome is at the end of the day. And 80% of executives, and this is by the way, self-polled. So if you you had really honest people, it'd probably be more like 90% say they struggle with imposter syndrome. So like, what's up with that? It feels like what's written on your highlight reel on LinkedIn seems to, you know, not fully align with the reality of people's perception of themselves. And so I think there's like something in that that we need to really like talk through and needs to make the senior most people more relatable, knowing that that's going on behind the scenes. And you know, the way that imposter syndrome traditionally comes out, it's usually insecurity. Totally. And I have it all the time. Like I have it every day. And when you are insecure, you're not yourself. You're not really authentic. So I'll give you a story. So I got promoted to an enterprise account executive job when I was like 24, something really young. And it was me and all the like old white enterprise reps, right? They're all like the 40 to 50 year olds that have all been selling for almost as long as I've been alive. And so I wore a blazer to each meeting, no matter what. I made sure I was cleanly shaven. Obviously, I've thrown that out the window. I made sure my hair was perfect. Obviously, that has clearly changed. And I went to a meeting. It was in Bellevue, and I met with Costco. And I went with my Essie, who was the most authentic, genuine, purest version of himself at all times. Been doing it a while, super senior. And he threw a tantrum, by the way, when he figured out, he's a close friend of mine now, when he figured out that Jubin, this 
this kid is going to be paired with him. It's like, it's like he's got to feed his family too, right? And I'm a big part of that at that point. So anyway, we go and I felt like I was projecting what my boss was or what the other reps were in that meeting, thinking that that was what I was supposed to be. Like I felt like I was not supposed to be me because I'm not qualified to be here. So I got to bring in what I see the others do and basically just use their script in this meeting and be them as close as I could be to them. And meeting didn't go well, no surprise. Like I was like just nervous and it's really hard being disingenuous. It's really difficult. It's much harder being someone else than it is being yourself. And so on the way back to the airport, his name is Marco. Uh, Marco, if you're listening, thank you. He looks at me and he just said, hey dude, can I give you one piece of feedback? And I said, of course, give me 10. Like I want it all, right? And he just said like, there's a reason you're in this job. And you're in this job because like there's a perceived ability in you and you have not actualized that ability yet. But if you're never gonna be yourself, then you're never gonna actually be who we think you can be because we want you to be the best version of you, not of you know your leader or whatever. Yeah. And he's like, dude, be you. You cuss like a sailor. It's okay to like, you don't have to say all of these things that you say, but like, it's okay. People like to be able to see yeah. that someone's being really genuine. So anyway, bringing it full circle, I think I was very much felt the imposter syndrome. It came out through insecurity and it manifested into like a lack of authenticity and genuineness that ended up just hurting the way that I did my job. Yeah. If we go back to what we were talking about previously and we talk about the best way to career acceleration is by remaining uncomfortable. Why are you uncomfortable? It's because you're insecure in some senses about your ability to do that thing because you've never done it before. And so I think it's, again, redefining things. We redefine failure, but let's redefine insecurity too. Should insecurity be a bad thing? Does insecurity really just mean that you're pushing the limits of your abilities in a way that's calling you up into a higher place? And so I think this is like why the imposter syndrome thing is so powerful for executives. It's like, if you're in a job where there's no level of insecurity, why are you in that job? Don't you want to do things where you're pushing the envelopes of what you're able to do? And if there's perfect security, either you're delusional or you're in a job that is too small for you, from my perspective. So there's this whole... Uh, topic of diversity, equity, inclusion, diverse thinking, diverse teams right now that is so awesome that's going on in the work world, right? And I, I think that the headline of it is that we need each other. Diversity of perspective, it strengthens your teams. Well, if you take that into the executive ranks, isn't that true for executives too? Don't they need to be challenged in their thinking? Don't they need to be surrounded by other people that are amazing that can supplement them in their weak spots? I think the problem is we're trying to be comprehensively great on our own and not realizing as executives that we're a part of a team too. And we need the people around us to supplement our soft spots and that soft spots shouldn't make you feel insecure. They should just remind you that you need people around you that are exceptional and you should get people around you that are exceptional and not make you shrink back. I think the problem is, is when you take a soft spot that you live in and then you say, oh, I should be insecure holistically about my ability to do this job because I'm not great in every area. And I think that's what happens when you see people come into real maturity of leadership is that you get more comfortable with your strengths, of course, but you also get more comfortable with your weak spots and they don't allow you to be insecure. It's not that you don't have any weak spots left and you don't have reason to be insecure. It's that you just realize that everybody's like that and that's why we need each other. I totally agree. And something you said really stuck with me. There is a common shittiness in leadership right now where it's very reactive. So like people are now conditioned to get a raise when they say they're gonna go get another job. And the reason that they wanna go get another job is because they have outgrown their current role and the leader has not done a good enough job recognizing that and putting them in a position where they can go be uncomfortable. And so in a lot of cases, it might be that you've outgrown your job and you're afraid of being vulnerable or like failing or whatever. A lot of the time, the best people are craving that. And they just don't necessarily have the leadership to say, you know what? We're gonna find a role for you that gets you excited and puts you out ahead of your skis. And so sometimes it is up to the person. A lot of the times it's up to great leaders 
And great leaders need to recognize when they have that talent and then move hell and high water to figure out what they can do to put that person in a position that is exciting for them. And exciting usually means uncomfortable, new, a different challenge. So true. I mean, you know, you, you had mentioned that there's this kind of LinkedIn mafia or this explosion of LinkedIn leaders that are now, you know, all over the valley and beyond. Part of that was explosive growth that gives a lot of opportunities for people that are doing the right things. But a huge part of it was there was a culture and a leadership team that believed in taking people that were showing strong and giving them jobs that were too big for them. And so, you know, when my LinkedIn profile reads the way it does, I had exceptional leaders that were betting on me in a way that was risky for them. It wasn't obvious that I was going to be able to grow into the next job. And so I think like finding an environment that invests in skill set, finding leaders that will, as you prove again, to be responsible in the areas that have been given to you, that they'll bet on you again and give you something bigger. Like these are the types of things that we should all be looking for when we think about which companies we join and which leaders we follow. I don't know if you heard this episode, but Dan Shapiro came on and he told a story. It still blows my mind when Jeff Weiner told him that he's not a good enough leader. And by the way, he's like the ultimate leader, right? Already at this point. Yeah. And Dan said, what are you talking about? And like, I have this huge org. I've put this entire division on my back. He didn't say it like that. I'm saying it for him like that. Long story short, Jeff just said, you're not well-rounded enough and you got to go get more skills in order to be a more effective leader. And he freaking goes from having like a thousand plus person team to an individual contributor on the PM role. And I was just thinking like, man, that is someone that wants to put themselves in a position that they can go learn a diversity and a range of skill. And that's a leader that can really recognize talent. And that is hard telling someone who's that good that they're actually not as good as they think. And the reason that they're not is because they're not uncomfortable enough. And talking about putting yourself in a position of just like, all right, let's see how it goes. I still can't believe that story. Yeah, I mean, we couldn't believe it when it happened at LinkedIn. (laughs) (laughs) And I think he had something more like 4,000 people under his responsibility, not that it matters at that magnitude, but yeah, and then he went to be an IC in product. It's amazing. And he's, he's one of the best leaders I know. He's unbelievable. So how big is your team? How many people are in your org? Uh, A little over 200. So they all have a black and white metric for success. Hit your number. Yes or no? I have a cross-functional team, so not quite. Yes in spirit for all of my quota carriers. Okay, quota quota carrying reps. Correct. Yep. So if they miss their number, did they fail? Let's go back to the wooden statement. Right? It's not the score of the game at the end of the day. It's how you showed up and did you give your everything. I would say that quota should represent a minimum bar for effectiveness in the role, not the aspiration for the role. Right? And so in most cases, in most cases, if the person comes in and applies themselves fully to the role, they have a humble and teachable attitude, they have a gritty mindset, and they get after it every day, have self-discipline to get after it every day, quota will take care of itself if they're doing all of the things that they need to do in that role. So in that way, does quota give everything to the role? Probably so in most cases, Mm -hmm. right? In some cases, not. In some cases, maybe somebody's not meant for sales or they're set up for failure because the organization has made quotas that are way too high or whatever it is. And so, you know, in those cases, you don't know if missing quota represents failure or not. But I think in most cases, if the general population is hitting quota, then I think it's probably a more indication of, am I doing the things that I need to do every day that are in my true control? And I would imagine in most cases, the answer to that would be no. Like I got distracted. I didn't prospect every day. I'm not humble enough to learn from the people around me and be challenged. And so I kind of am just doing the same thing over and over again, right? I'm not resourceful enough to listen to this kind of podcast and learn how to be a a well-rounded business professional, whatever it is. I think most cases it's a challenge back to, I probably didn't do everything I could to uh, show up in the way that I wanted to. That is an excellent transition into Gong because taking the wooden analogy like one final step over, Gong in my mind enables you to understand your process better period. 
So let me give a couple stats for the audience that doesn't know Gong. And then if you could give like the 20 second primer on what it is, that'd be helpful for us as a launching pad here. In August, 2021, Gong raised 200 million from CO2 and its series D. Sequoia did the series C. It's worth like, I think over 2 billion at this point or something. Maybe I'm wrong last, there. Last valuation was 2.2. 2.2, yep. Sequoia did the series C. Battery Ventures, Cisco, Norwest, all involved. It is along with outreach and a few others redefining what sales, sales enablement might look like as standalone, amazingly valuable companies. What does Gong do? And most of the audience probably knows, but for those that don't. So if you back out, the Gong was built on, on a premise that's basically, it is not optional for us to know what's going on in the sales conversation. Every day, we have these reps that are going out into the market. They're communicating our message, our pricing, our sales methodology, all of these things are going out into your market. And then your market, your most important ICP buyers are literally communicating back to you whether they buy it, like, you know, whether they, they resonate with the things you're doing and saying, and we're going to flush all that down the drain and have no access to what's going on in the conversation. That is, that's an asinine starting point. And I think it's just crazy. There's no doubt in my mind in three years, we're going to look back and be like, can you believe we tried to run sales organizations with no idea what was going on in the conversations? Like that's just, it's just crazy. So what Gong does is it provides visibility into what's really happening in those conversations. And then it allows the organization to answer the most important questions to running a tight revenue organization based on the data that's happening in the conversations. Like, what are my best people doing that everybody else should be doing? Which deals in my pipeline are at risk that aren't reflected in the CRM? Which competitors are real? So that's how it works for sales leadership. And then, of course, we apply those insights down to the ground level to enable really amazing manager to rep coaching moments where they can view game film, view some statistics, and be really involved in their own self-development as well as the organization developing them more effectively. So first of all, I recommend going to like a ton of companies, but I have never used it as a leader or an AE. And so I have some questions about it. Maybe they're, I guess, challenging some of the notions. And I asked Kevin from Clary some of the similar questions around like, look, do you lose your gut if you're always relying on AI to like do forecasting? I think about the use case of, I have a team of 13 senior enterprise reps across the Midwest that have been selling into these accounts for 15 years. And I'm Jubin as their 26 or whatever year old leader at the time. Am I gonna turn on Gong and tell them how long they're talking to a customer. And maybe that's my insecurity showing, but like, I just kind of think about that use case. Or if someone told me, Jubin, the average talk time of a successful rep is three minutes and 30 seconds. Why aren't you doing that? I'd be like, well, first of all, just look at the leaderboard. Why are you managing to this degree when the leaderboard just, the score is there? If we're undefeated, I don't know. Are you measuring what matters there? An obvious thing would be like, just look at pipeline. How many meetings are you creating in a, in a week, right? Back to my thing about sleep and eating. I always have all these cheats and hacks and things that I could do. My mother always asked me like, Juven, how do I you know, lose five or 10 pounds or whatever? I'm like, mom, you're not even sleeping eight hours. You're not working out every day. Like, we're not doing the foundation here. So I'll shut up and pause, get your reaction to that. Yeah, absolutely. The starting point I'd say is who in the NBA, for example, watches more game film and views more stats than probably anybody else. The people that I know that are famous for that are people like LeBron and Kobe and Jordan, right? Like they're the ones that are more interested in refining their game than anybody else. And so I think this misnomer that you really reach some level of excellence to the point where you don't need to invest in your game and that any portion of input from a coach is like, wait, do you know who I am? You know, <laughs> I don't need this. I think that that is a fundamental like, mental starting point that I think should be addressed. So that's number one. Number two, though, is I don't think you take the same tactical advice that you start with in the little leagues and apply that to Jordan or LeBron, right? Like that's not the coaching moment that you have with them. So the examples that you gave, I think would be amazing for a brand new inside sales rep who's learning yep. sales. Like, hey, you talk 75% of the time that's probably an opportunity to ask better questions and listen, you know, like let's talk about how human influence happens, right? The types of insights that you'd work on with a more senior person would be, hey, I've noticed that you're not 
collaborating with your team, your cross-functional team, to the same extent as your peer set. And I wonder if that could be contributing to a lower metric over here, right? So maybe you're killing it and you're, you know, you're 150%, but your ASP is actually lower than your peer set. What if you kept all of the same metrics in every other area, but you raised your ASP to where everyone else is? You'd be 300%. That seems pretty interesting, right? So I think the way that you would coach would probably have to do with more sophisticated things, like how well do you run a cross-functional team? Or even in Gong, you know, you can find in Gong what percentage of conversations you're talking about things more than others or less than others, right? So next steps, how much time do you spend talking about next steps, but also value proposition pillars. So like elements of your value proposition or what percentage of the conversation are you spent doing discovery? So then you could go, okay, you know, related to my peer set, actually the person who's the best in the org spends 33% more time doing discovery in their first meeting. That's really interesting, even as a senior rep. So yeah, I think it'd just be the application of what does that coaching actually look like? Totally fair. Okay, so the application of the coaching of the tool, correct? Or whatever, using the tool in a thoughtful way, applying it to different scenarios, and the person that is applying it is the manager ostensibly. To your example, like you have a junior AE, mid-market AE team. More often than not, in the tech companies that we've worked for, that junior AE or that mid-market rep, their manager was their peer like six months ago. And then they got promoted. And then they said, hey, here's Gong. And so what would they do? They'd look at it and they'd say, Susie, your competitive win rate is 40%, while her peers have a 60%, right? Jenna has a 60% win rate. What's going on? Why can't you close the deal? So they would start looking at like their closing techniques, asking the right questions. However, Win rate can often be a misleading indicator of pipeline. So I could have 50 deals and have a close rate that's 40%, or I could have 20 deals and have a close rate that's 60%. And so if you're just picking off the lower hanging fruit, you're going to have a lower total pipeline and you're going to have a higher win rate. So if you didn't know how to read that data, which most early managers don't, that are applying the tool then all of a sudden you're managing the wrong thing in that circumstance. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. The question I would ask is, are you net-net better off or making the same incorrect hypotheses without the data set, without the game film, without, without anything else? So is there a risk for a manager to take the insights and misapply them? Of course, absolutely. But should that keep us from getting that data set and the insights and the game film to those managers and then better? How about this? We deploy a tool, but we don't leave it just there. We actually enable them to be amazing sales managers and teach them which threads to pull and how to be effective. I think there's like a a need for a combination of both. But yeah, I think uh, in both cases, you're better off. Totally fair. I don't disagree. There is one other thing. Actually, there's like 15 other things that I want to talk about. We're not going to get to any of them, but there is one thing that I do want to talk about. I heard you say on some other piece of media, I don't know what it was. I lost track at this point. I'm even quoting tweets that you probably didn't even tweet. So speaking of characteristics and qualities of people, managers, leaders, reps, et cetera, you said one of the first things that I did at Gong was establish what are the attributes that make the best sales rep at Gong? What does great look like? And you listed off five. Coachability, previous history of success, intelligence and business acumen, grit, and curiosity. I've had others list off their own characteristics. Any that you want to pull out of there or any that you feel a particular affinity for or any that you would change or maybe just the basic question of why are those the ones that you think are important? So I will say that there was an interesting adjustment to one of them that we made. So in general, I think those five things, they're spot on, they're really good. Curiosity shows an intellectual curiosity. It's like I'm craving to really, truly understand, right? Uh, Previous history of success, sometimes it's in sales, sometimes it's not. But I think getting really good at assessing talent by saying, hey, if somebody learned how to be successful in some other area, 
they can probably apply similar principles to be successful in this, right? So, so I think those five attributes are generally spot on. The one that we needed to adjust over time that I think is really interesting and oftentimes misunderstood is the coachability one. And what we found was when we started interviewing for coachability, we looked for things like humility to be able to receive feedback openly, right? Like some people you give feedback and it's like it's hitting a wall and you can feel it as the one giving them the feedback. Like that's not going to go well in our environment, right? At Gong, we're committed to this beautiful craft of sales. We have the world's best tool to create amazing salespeople and we want people to love it and realize that like we've got a way to go and I'm, I'm wanting feedback from everybody to get better. And so we started by receptivity of feedback. It was actually the wrong thing for us to focus on in this broader area of coachability. Coachability, actually, what you really need to focus on is are people able to implement the feedback that you've given properly? Not so much are they receptive. And what we saw in the early days is we'd, for the people that weren't making it at Gong, unfortunately, after we'd given them a huge investment, we were like, why did that not work out? And we were really reflective as to like, okay, you know, let's assess. Why are these not working out? And we realized that they were some of the most humble people in the world. They would like receive feedback like a sponge, but for one reason or another, they weren't able to implement it in the way that they needed to in order to get better in their job. So now we started interviewing for that more effectively and helping people kind of think about that as a skill set. That's kind of like a life hack. You know, I mean, it really is. If, if you can watch somebody do something or you can receive a piece of feedback and then you can apply that properly, I mean, that that is like a career acceleration gift. That's something that we are really doubling down on and pretty explicit about. That's great. By the way, the CRO Shopify had five characteristics that he looks for. And he was proud of the fact that he never hired a salesperson before. And they were all really successful only by looking at these five criteria. They are not very different from your criteria. They really are not. I'll put them both in the show notes. All right. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Ryan. I always wrap these things up with the same uh, couple questions. The first, what does the word grit mean to you? And how do you or your teams apply it? Grit simply is you won't give up. You fight till the bitter end and you just like won't give up whether it's hardship or whether it's failures or whether it's anything else. And what Angela talks about is that usually that kind of attitude and that kind of longevity comes from the collision of passion and perseverance. And so, you know, like the passion side of it is, do you have something that you care about and love enough to stick with it? And the perseverance side of it is like this, it's like an internal character trait. It's like self-control. My word's not hers, right? But I think it's finding both of those things, finding something you're passionate about to refuse to give up and then realizing that this is a life trait that you need to master and just becoming gritty, like just choosing to embrace the suck, as the Navy SEALs say, like, I'm going to go through hard things. It's going to be a part of my journey. It's a part of life. And I need to just take it head on and go at it hard. That's what grittiness looks like to me, is somebody who can face hard things and overcome and push through and never give up. Is Gong hiring? Yeah, Gong is hiring like gangbusters. So if we have exceptional people out there that exude the attributes that we talked about, I am more than How do you get a hold of you? LinkedIn, email, what's the best way? LinkedIn is good. I was there for 10 years. I can't give up on it just yet. Definitely not. Ryan, this was great. Thank you for your time, man. Thanks, Steven. Appreciate it, man. Thank you, folks, for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at JubinMir or shoot us an email, gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.